Welcome to the Christian Combatives Monday Megasode. The purpose of these Megasodes is to mirror all of the YouTube and Rumble content up on the podcast. All the audio is preserved and presented here in its original and sometimes substandard form as it appeared in the video from start to finish, music included. The titles of these videos are listed in the podcast description. Today's episode includes, I'm a good person, I don't need God. Is Christian unity real? Is gay marriage equal rights? Jesus is the final prophet, and Kyle Rittenhouse and moral injury. Enjoy. So here's one I see a lot. This one's from Penn Jillette. It says this. The question I get asked by religious people all the time is, without God, what's to stop me from raping all I want? And my answer is, I do rape all I want, and the amount I want is zero. And I do murder all I want, and the amount I want is zero. The fact that these people think that if they didn't have this person watching over them, that they would go on killing, raping rampages is the most self-demeaning thing I can imagine. Pen Gillette. Well, here's why that doesn't work. Penulet makes an interesting statement here, but it doesn't really hold up to scrutiny if you look closely. Now he starts off by listing a couple of sins, uh, and we'll call them sins. They're moral evil, moral atrocity, They're, it's good versus evil, there's, there's sins for the sake of simplicity. He says, I commit these sins as much as I want to, and the amount that I want to commit these sins is zero. So he doesn't want to sin, therefore he doesn't sin. I do wonder if that's the only thing preventing him from sinning. Then he then goes on to make this statement that he thinks that it's self-demeaning, uh, the most self-demeaning thing that I can imagine is what he says. He thinks it's self-demeaning for people to consider that there might need to be an external moral arbiter or an external moral enforcer. But that's what society is made up of. That's what the police forces, the judicial branch of the government, is there to say, if you go and murder somebody, this is the consequence for your action. It's not good, it's not fun, so don't do it. And for some people, they don't want to murder anybody, so they don't murder anybody. Good for them, good for Penn Jillette. And some people do want to murder some people. And this is why people murder each other. Like, this may be shocking to you, but there are actual people who commit moral atrocities. There are actual people who want to do bad things. And some of these people are prevented by external sources, by, by, as to use his words, by a person watching over them, by a person uh, who externally would try to prevent them from, from committing these sins. There are people who are prevented from crime by the existence of a police force. They don't want to get caught, so they don't do a sin. So, Pendulet's argument doesn't really hold up here. I mean, it's fantastic that he doesn't want to murder anybody, but that only applies to him. And what if there is a sin that he does want to do? What if there's a sin that he, that he wants to do? How, what's going to prevent him from doing that? If the only thing that stands in his way is just, I want to do this thing, so I'm going to do it. I don't want to do that thing, so I'm not going to do it. Then what's to prevent him from doing something bad that he actually wants to do? And this comes to a bigger question. How do we know what's bad? How do we know what's right and wrong? Now, before you tell me, oh, you just look in your heart and figure it out. It doesn't work like that. 
And here's why. Because your heart and my heart are not the same. If you feel that something is wrong, and I feel that that is not wrong, which one of us is correct? If right and wrong is just based on what you feel or what I feel, we're really just talking about preferences. I'm saying, I would prefer that you not murder me, please. And you say, well, I would prefer that I do murder you, please, and thank you. Well, we're at an impasse here, because my moral code, my subjective feeling, is different than your moral code, your subjective feeling. So how do we know which one of us is right and wrong? We obviously can't figure out what's right and wrong just by looking in our hearts and checking our feelings. That doesn't work. You need an external source. You need, you need somebody who would actually know what we ought and ought not do. And how do we find this person? They're not in government. They're not in the police force. They're not even a collection of people who all get together in a society and say, we all agree together that this, that this is going to be a law, that, you, you know, that you're not allowed to ride a horse on Tuesday. Right? That's not, that's not a source of objective morality. That's just people agreeing on subjective moral ideas. The only way you know what someone ought and ought not do is when you go to the source. Let me explain it like this. If you have a book, the book was written by someone, the one who writes the book, the author who writes the book knows what he wants the book to mean or knows what she wants the book to mean. Now people may come by later and say, well, I think that Shakespeare meant that this is all an allegory for the, the, the struggles of the pre-post-industrial millennium, whatever. You may come up with all kinds of crazy ideas, but the fact of the matter is that the only person who knows for a fact what exactly that book was supposed to mean is the one who wrote the book. When he wrote the book, he wrote it for a purpose. He wrote it to convey information. Same thing with an artist. An artist paints a painting. And they want that painting to elicit a certain emotion. They alone objectively can say, that painting is supposed to make you sad. You can say, well, that painting makes me happy. Well, that's not what it's supposed to do. The painting very well may make you happy, but it's supposed to make you sad. What about somebody who makes a machine? Some fabricator who creates, you know, it's got all these gears and levers and all this other stuff. He knows how that machine is supposed to function. He knows how the gears are supposed to interconnect and turn, what they're supposed to do. Now, you very well can use something, use a machine for a purpose that it was not intended for. But the way you know what a machine was made for and how it is supposed to function is going back to the source, going back to the fabricator, going back to the painter, going back to the author of the book, and in your case, going back to your creator. You see, the only one who can determine how you ought to behave, how you ought to interact with one another, is the person who made you. It's as simple as that. And you can say, well, if morality is subjective, if it comes from you, and morality is subjective, if it comes from me, how come it's not subjective if it comes from God? Because God isn't deciding morality for himself in this case. What God is doing is he is creating something. And this something that he's creating, you, he knows exactly how it's supposed to fit together and how it's supposed to work. He knows how your biology is supposed to work. He knows how your morality is supposed to work. He knows how you ought to behave. Okay, great. Now we've got a creator who knows how, what we ought to do. How are we supposed to know that? We can't read minds. At least I can't. And we know that we can't just look in our hearts and feel our way to the truth. So how are we supposed to know? Well, I'm glad you asked. The only way to know 
the only way to know the ought, the intent of a creation, is when it is communicated by that creator. Yeah, you're following along now. So, when God communicates what you ought and ought not do, let's say on a mountain somewhere on stone tablets, he gives like a list of 10 things that he's like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, right? This creator has communicated how you ought to function. Now, it goes beyond the Ten Commandments. The entire Bible, you, this is why you have, to, you have to look to an external source. This is why you can look in the Bible, because the Bible is a communication of God's intent. Intent for how you're supposed to live your life. What you're supposed to be, what, we, what you were created for. What is the meaning of life? What is your purpose? How are you supposed to act? What are you supposed to do? These all are, are written by the one who made you. This is all decided by the one who made you. And it's given to us in the Bible. So as much as you want to just say, well, that's pathetic that you have to look to an external source to know what's right and wrong. I know what's right and wrong in my heart. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But how can you check? How can you know for sure? You don't. <laughs> you, you don't. So... Maybe don't rely on your own sort of personal feelings to know what right and wrong is. Look to an objective source. And if you say, well, I commit this sin as much as I want to, and I want to commit it zero amounts of time, uh, therefore I think it's preposterous that anybody needs to have an external, an external moral enforcer out there to, to, you know, to curb them from doing right and wrong. I mean, again, you're arguing against human nature here. Like... Every society basically has had a police force or somebody who, who will enact judgment, enact justice, uh, who will sort out when something, when somebody does something wrong. So again, I mean, I'm sorry, Pendulette. I think you're a very entertaining actor and magician and juggler, but this argument just does not hold up. It was very cleverly worded, and I'm sure it's very convincing to a lot of people. But it just doesn't work, my man. <laughs> I'm sorry it doesn't work. Hopefully that helped you guys understand some of this. You take care. <laughs>
these these ways to to get along with one another. And he talks about unity, unity in the church. Now, unity is something that we should desire. It's not a good thing that we have different denominations. At least, it's not a good thing because we're supposed to be unified. But there is something that comes of the denominations. There's a reason that they have to exist. Now, there's some verse in Corinthians, and I can't remember it off the top of my head, but I would look it up on a search engine, and, and it goes something like this. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, and he says that he's actually glad to hear that there, are, that there are schisms among you, that there are divisions among you. And the reason that he's glad to hear this, he says, I'm glad to hear that there are divisions among you, because then that means not everybody is, is falling for the same trick. Not everybody is in the same, you know, disbelief. There are divisions among you, and this is a good thing, according to Paul, because this means that not everybody is following the wrong way. And yet, here he is in Ephesians chapter 4 talking about unity. But these two things aren't a contradiction. They're not a contradiction. There should be a unity. And that unity is of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit is not just, you know, your Spirit or whatever. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The Christian church ought to be unified in the Holy Spirit. This is, this is the hub from which all the spokes of the wheel are connected. The unity is of the Spirit. Now... When you think of unity, a lot of times people think of ecumenism. They think of this idea where we should just all put aside our differences, agree to disagree, hold hands and sing kumbaya, and it sounds really nice. It wouldn't it be great if, you know, the Catholics and the Baptists sat down at the table of brotherhood together. But what would that actually look like? What would that look like if, if there was to be unity between all these different denominations would the Baptists say, oh, you know the Pope, the Holy Father? We acknowledge that he is the Vicar of Christ and that the Magisterium has the authority to pronounce, you know, doctrinal explanations, that they have that authority. What about the Roman Catholics? Would they say, you know what, the Lutherans are right. You, we are saved by faith through grace alone, uh, not by works so that no one may boast. And in fact, our works contribute nothing to our salvation. They're totally right. And oh, by the way, let's stop, you know, trying to pray, pray so the saints can hear us. And, uh, and, and, and Mary wasn't assumed into heaven uh, and there was no immaculate conception. She wasn't born without sin. So they would have to give up that. And when the Eastern Orthodox, are they supposed to give up, uh, um, not theodicy, you know what I'm talking about. You know the, the thing. Um, Ah, how can I not remember it? The thing where you become godlike. It's Theo something. Theocratic. See, this is going to bother me that this is in the video and I cannot remember what it's called for the life of me. Oh, well, whatever. But you know the thing, that thing that they believe that uh, theosis, theosis, this is called theosis. Now, if you look at Dr. Jordan, uh, Jordan Cooper's videos, he'll talk about this thing called Lutheran theosis, and it's a different explanation of a similar but not same concept, whatever. So, so all these denominations would basically have to give up their distinctive beliefs that they hold to that say, this is what God taught, this is what God taught, uh, and they would have to give these things up. Is that what you're expecting for unity? Okay, yeah, let's have unity, and then everybody gives up every belief that is in contradiction with every other one. And you have a very shallow theology that's so general that it doesn't really answer very many questions. Is that unity? Is unity instead where everybody gets to keep the beliefs distinct to their denominations, and instead we just, 
you just overlook it. We say, oh, well, we agree to disagree. Maybe there's a pope. Maybe there's not a pope. Maybe baptism saves. Maybe baptism doesn't save. Maybe it's the Lord's Supper. Maybe it's, you know, a representation. Uh, you know, maybe there's baptismal regeneration. Maybe that's an outward sign of an inward change. You know, if everybody just says, well, I'm just not going to talk about it. It's like, you know, you're at a dinner table at Thanksgiving and you're with your relatives. And you're not supposed to talk about religion, politics, or religion. And... Everybody disagrees on these things, but nobody talks about it, so I guess we all get along. We all just shut our mouths, and no theological conversation ever happens. Is that unity? Because those two things seem to be the only way to achieve a general unity. A general unity where either we all give up the beliefs that we have distinct to our denominations, or we just don't talk about them. And neither of these is what Paul is suggesting. Paul wants there to be unity of the Spirit, which means that there will be conversation, there will be disagreement, and, and there will be discussion on these topics because it's important to know what does the Holy Spirit teach? What does God teach us? What does Scripture say about baptism, about the Lord's Supper, about women's ordination, about homosexuality, about literally any one of these topics that divides all kinds of churches? What does the Bible say? What does the Holy Spirit say? If we have unity of the Spirit, then that Spirit, that Holy Spirit, is the center around which our unity exists. Now, is there unity at all in the Christian church? Yes, because among Christians, there are things that we have in common. We do pray to the same God. And don't, don't confuse me with this, you know, we pray to the same God as the, as, as the Jewish and the Muslim. No, no, you don't. You don't. But I'm saying that the Roman Catholic and the Lutheran pray to the same God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the Baptists and the Methodists, hopefully, and, you know, the Presbyterian and all these other, if they're at an actual Christian group, then they're praying to the same God. Should you pray together? Well, that's a topic that your denomination certainly has something to, say, to talk about. But there, there is the same God. There's the same Bible. And the, you know, the whole, well, Luther tried to rip seven books out of the Bible <laughs> argument's going to come up in the, in the comment section. I already smell it. I know you Catholics are here somewhere going to tell me about the Apocrypha and how it's, you know, whatever. Uh, but we, I mean, for the most part, yeah, we do have the same scripture. We've got the same gospels and the same, the same epistles. And aside from the Deuterocanon, we have the same Old Testament. We have all of these things in common with one, with one another. Now, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox, they'll say, well, these books are part of the canon too. But the rest of it we have in common with one another with the rest of the Christians. And if you ever go to, if you're ever, you know, in some military, I don't know, thing, and you have a chaplain, a lot of times the chaplain will end up leading a religious service, not necessarily an interfaith service, that's not, that's not the right thing, but they will lead... You can have a, a Baptist chaplain lead a general Protestant service. You see that sometimes. And in fact, a Roman Catholic, a Roman Catholic chaplain, he may lead a Christian service. In fact, he may lead a Roman Catholic mass because he should be leading a Roman Catholic mass. And a Lutheran should be leading a Lutheran mass and so on and so forth. But you may have other denominations of Christian there. Guess what? All you've got on the basis is a Roman Catholic and you're a Methodist. You know what? That guy can tell you what's in the Bible. That guy can read the word of God to you. You shouldn't take communion from him because you're not a Roman Catholic. And if he's a good priest, he's not going to let you. But he can sure read you the Gospels. He can tell you about God's forgiveness and God, who, Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, your sin that you need to repent of. 
We have that in common. We have the spirit there in common, those things in common. So there is some unity. We're not completely disconnected, but we are imperfectly in union currently. All of the different denominations, as long as you are a Christian, you are united with all other Christians in the bond of the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit, you are united with everyone else who has the Holy Spirit. Which comes to, and what Paul mentions in this, Ephesians chapter 4, which comes to, I think, the greatest, the greatest example of unification in Christianity. I'll tell you what it is as soon as I go over this cattle guard reel, right, right quick. Bzz, bzz. The greatest unification that we have in, in, in Christendom is baptism. And Paul talks about this. He says there's, you know, there's one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's not different kinds of baptisms. There's not a baptism of water and a baptism of the Spirit. The baby baptism and the, and the believer's baptism. The regenerative baptism and the, you know, I don't know. There's not a Roman Catholic baptism and a Lutheran baptism. There is a baptism. As long as it is it, by the command of God, done by the command of God, and it uses, the, it uses water like God commands, and it's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as long as it is a Christian baptism ordained by Scripture, ordained by Christ, that baptism is the same as every other Christian's baptism. And every Christian who lives, who has lived, is in one of three categories. Either one, they have been baptized. Two, they want to be baptized. Three, if they knew what baptism was, they would want it. There is no such thing as a Christian who rejects baptism. If you reject baptism, you reject the one who gave you baptism. Baptism unites Christianity. Cattle guard. Baptism unites Christianity. And it's, I mean, it's an outward thing that we can see. It's, it's using the water that we can see. And hopefully, I mean, there's emergency baptisms and stuff, but many baptisms happen within a church or within public congregations so everybody can rejoice. Hey, look, this guy is brought into the, the same family of God as us. All Christians, because they all have the same baptism, the same birth, they have the same mother, the church. They are all members of the same body, the body of Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Paul breaks it down like that. He says, one, 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 one. This is unity. This is unity. This is the many being brought together to become one. E pluribus unum, as we used to say here in this country. Unity. We will have perfect unity in the last day. When everyone gets to heaven... All of, you know, all of these secrets, all of these confusions about denominations, they're going to be gone. They're going to be gone. You're going to have Christians who all believe the exact same thing because it's finally revealed to them. <coughs> Bless me. It's finally, it's finally revealed to them. It's fi they finally perfectly understand the promises and commands of God because in heaven, we no longer have these, you know, these sinful bodies and this confusion that we have on the earth. Now, if you're like, well, God, what did you mean by this passage? You know who you could ask? God, who's like right there with you in heaven. So there's not going to be any, any, any divisions, any more denominations. In heaven, there will be perfect unity. And some of us are going to get to heaven and say, oh, whoops. I did not believe the right thing about this certain topic, but I did trust in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I am saved by his death on the cross. So now I am glad that I am corrected on this topic. There will be perfect unity in heaven, and we can rejoice and look forward to that. At the same time, we can lament that we do have different denominations here. 
It's a necessity, unfortunately, because there's disagreements about what Scripture says. Denominations are an unfortunate result, but they are an important result of people trying to be true to God's Word. And in the meantime, we can also rejoice that we do have some unity, albeit imperfect, with the other Christians and the other denominations. And thank God that He is saving people outside of our specific denominations. But I'm not an ecumenist. I don't, I'm not a universalist. I don't think you just anybody goes to heaven. If you're a Christian, you do. And if you're a Christian, and you're united to me because you're united to God. God bless you and take care of you. You have a good week. Ricky Gervais has this to say. He says, Same-sex marriage isn't gay privilege. It's equal rights. Privilege would be something like gay people not paying taxes. Like churches don't. Ooh, shots fired by Ricky Gervais. And I thought guns were illegal where he lived. <laughs> Here's why he lived. This tweet from Ricky Gervais comes from 2014. Now in the United States in 2014, there was, an, there was an ongoing argument over whether or not gay marriage should be legalized in the same capacity as heterosexual marriage. So Ricky tweets this, same-sex marriage isn't gay privilege, it's equal rights. Rights, right, let's get into rights. Rights pertain to you as an individual. You have the right in the United States to have the freedom of speech. You have the right to bear arms. You have the right to be protected from unlawful search and seizure. You have all kinds of rights. They pertain to you as an individual. There were times in history, times in the United States even, where these rights were not equal. They were unequal. For example, Jim Crow laws and segregation. In Jim Crow laws and segregation, you had unequal rights. You had a man, for example, who was of one ethnicity, was able to drink out of one water fountain and go to one school, where a man of a different ethnicity was not able to drink out of that same water fountain and go to that same school. You had a woman who was not able to ride on the bus in the same place as somebody of a different skin color. You had these differences in rights. They were unequal rights. They were based on the individual. Now, this is why Ricky's tweet doesn't actually make any sense. He says, same-sex marriage isn't gay privilege, it's equal rights. Here's the thing. Even in 2014, when he wrote this tweet, even before then, heterosexual and homosexual men had the exact same rights in regards to marriage. Heterosexual and homosexual women had the exact same rights in regards to marriage. Let me break it down for you. A homosexual man had the right to marry a woman. A heterosexual man also had the right to marry a woman. Do you see how that's the exact same thing? A heterosexual woman could marry a man. A heterosexual or a homosexual woman could also marry a man. A heterosexual man could not marry another man, whether for tax purposes. Or a homosexual man could not marry another man, whether for tax purposes or love or anything else. Same thing with the women. You see how it's a difference, not of individual rights, not of unequal rights, but a difference of a formula? This is a difference of a recipe. You see, marriage 
here in 2014 before, and I would argue even now, marriage is a combination of two ingredients to produce a third thing, a third different thing. Let's make it as simple as possible. The color green. Now green is produced by mixing the pigments of yellow and blue. That is the recipe to make green. Now, if you wanted to change the recipe and put different ingredients in there, you would no longer have green. Marriage was the same way. Marriage was a man and a woman, a man and a woman being brought together to create a marriage, a married couple. In the case of green, if you wanted to take two, two pigments of yellow and, two, and mix them together, you would not get green. And if you wanted to take two pigments of blue and mix those together, you would not get green. You would only get green if you mix those two ingredients in the recipe together, that formula. So marriage in this case was the formula. The goal here was not to have equal rights, but to change the formula. Equal rights already existed. But the formula for marriage was to be redefined. It was to be expanded to say, now you can make green by mixing yellow and yellow together, or you can make green by mixing blue and blue together. And if you disagree, then you're a bigot. Now, it's interesting that this, this fight for equal rights just went that far and stopped because you know that there are all sorts of restrictions that men and women, heterosexual or homosexual, have in who they can marry. For example, did you know that a homosexual man or a, a heterosexual man, neither of them is allowed to marry somebody who doesn't want to marry them? Who is somebody who, who completely, who completely like, declines a marriage? Forced marriages are not legal in the United States. Likewise, polygamy is mostly illegal in the United States. Whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, does that mean it's unequal rights because the formula uh, isn't expanded to include these different, these different varieties of combinations? No, it's not. This is, again, not about equal rights at all. This is about changing the formula to include one additional combination and then saying it's the exact same thing. But if you put different ingredients in a recipe, you get a different result. It's just how it goes. Privilege would be something like gay people not paying taxes, like churches don't. This is hilarious, and I don't think he understands why. So the reason churches don't pay taxes is because they are charitable organizations. They have 501c3 status. This is because of the Johnson Amendment. I advise you to please look it up. Google the Johnson Amendment, and then maybe look up why it's a bad idea to repeal it. So repealing the Johnson Amendment would not only mean that churches start paying taxes and all charitable organizations start paying taxes, but this would also mean that they are now able to be involved directly in politics. You see, this isn't just a free privilege that they get, but rather this is a restriction that is coupled with a benefit. If you were donating your money to a charitable organization for the sake of a tax write-off, they could not then use that money for a political party. Now, if you remove the Johnson Amendment, suddenly you've removed that separation of church and state that you have there. Suddenly, all of these charitable organizations and religious organizations can directly support and publicly endorse candidates and parties. Is that really what you want? Do you want the Church of Donald Trump of Latter-day Saints? Because that's how you get the Church of Donald Trump of Latter-day Saints, Ricky. Is that what you want? <laughs> but the other funny part about this is Let's say you applied this privilege to gay people, like he suggests, not paying taxes. Well, again, along with the privilege of the 501c3 status comes the consequence of uninvolvement in politics. I don't think I've ever heard somebody 
seriously propose that gay people should stop paying taxes and no longer be involved in politics. That's an interesting take there, Ricky. That's a really interesting take, but hey, you do you, buddy. You do you. <laughs> I hope you had fun. You know, there's one profession from the Bible that you don't see so much anymore. And this is the, the role or the office of the prophet. Now, of course, there's going to be a lot of people who claim to be prophets these days. And if they're claiming to be a prophet, chances are they're up to some mischief. Or maybe they're confused if you want to be charitable. More than likely, they're after your money. Or at least your praise and adoration. You know, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he was spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now, by this text, we know that there are no modern-day prophets. There are no people who God has specifically appointed and designated to the role of prophet, like he did with Moses or Jonah or... Isaiah, Jeremiah, any of these people in the Old Testament, that role doesn't exist anymore. The office of prophet is closed. Now, the text that we had for this last Sunday from Deuteronomy and from John talked about the prophet. There's a specific prophet, and Moses points forward to it, and John and the and the, uh, the, the goons, the lackeys of the Pharisees talk about this prophet a little bit. What are they talking about? Let's get into it. One thing that's common with all prophets throughout the entire Bible, all prophets is that they all point to Christ. They're always talking about Christ, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. Even in the case of Jonah, where Jonah is told to go and tell the people of Nineveh to repent, he's ultimately talking about the gospel because he knows that they'll be saved by the gospel. And the gospel is Christ, Christ dying for people. Now, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Moses is, is, is recording, well, his words are God's words because he's a prophet. That's what, that's what prophets do. They speak God's word. Moses is telling people, this. He says, I will raise up a prophet. Well, God is telling people, I will raise up a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all I command him. And whoever does not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is God through Moses telling the people that there is going to be a prophet, singular. There's going to be a specific prophet who's going to fulfill a specific Specific task, uh, you know, specific set of parameters. Again, after Moses come a plethora of prophets, like Elijah, Daniel, Malachi. But Moses is talking, well, God is talking through Moses about a specific prophet, a the prophet, if you will. Now, this is important because later on, the Pharisees, and of course, you know, the people who understood the Old Testament, who remember these, these, um, these promises of a prophet, uh, they ask questions about a specific prophet that... They confront John the baptizer. Now, let's fast forward a few thousand years to that confrontation. They, they confront John the baptizer, uh, and they're asking him, who are you? These are the, 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 uh, the priests and the Levites that the Pharisees sent. They go to John the Baptist, John the baptizer, and they say, who are you? 
Now, John the baptizer, he's a good prophet. He's, he, he's a proper prophet, if you will. God actually chose him to deliver message, well, a message or messages, the gospel. God told him to deliver the law and the gospel, you know, repent and, uh, and be baptized. God specifically chose him for this task. And these Pharisees, well, not, you know, whatever. The Pharisees, goons, whatever. These goons come up to John the baptizer and they want him to talk about himself. And John the baptizer is only interested in talking about, shocker, the Christ, Jesus. Again, this is what all the prophets throughout all time have been talking about. They've been talking about the gospel, the law and the gospel, Jesus. They've been talking about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, depending on if you prefer Greek or Hebrew. Now, they come and they ask John, the baptizer, they say, who are you, who are you, who are you? He confessed, this is what the text says, this is from John, uh, uh, he says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Now they ask him three things. Are you, uh, well, there's three titles that are that are in this section. The Christ, which means the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one. Obviously, that's Jesus, right? Um, then they say, "What then are you, Elijah?" Now they're asking because he, he's dressed in his camel camel skin and his in his big leather belt. He looks like Elijah. And later on, Jesus will talk to him and say that John the Baptist will talk about him and say that John the Baptizer was the Elijah. Um, now they're not they don't mean the same thing. These people are asking him. They are thinking about. Elijah as kind of the reincarnation, well, not reincarnation, because Elijah was carried up into heaven in the fiery chariot. Um, if this is the return of Elijah, that Elijah, that one who was carried up in the fiery chariot, and, and John says no. Jesus later on says that, well, I mean, Elijah is a prefigurement. He is a a type or a shadow of John the baptizer. Elijah came before John, but John had a greater task than Elijah. Even his cool as Elijah's stories are, um, there, you know, the Bible says, I believe there was none born of woman greater than, greater than John. John had a very specific, a very important task to prepare the way for Jesus, for the Christ, for the Messiah. So he is not Elijah. He is the anti-type of Elijah. Um, Elijah is the prefigurement of, of, uh, John the baptizer, but he is not Elijah, who's come back down to earth. He is not the Christ, the Messiah himself. And they say, are you the prophet? Now, again, the prophet um, understood is not, it's not just a prophet. He's, they're not saying, are you a prophet? Yes, John was a prophet. He was told by God to convey a specific message to spe specific people. That's what prophets do. They speak God's word to specific people. Are you the prophet? And the answer is no, he's not. He's not the prophet. Now again, we recall the uh, the message from uh, from uh, from Deuteronomy where Moses is talking about a prophet or the prophet, a specific prophet, uh, and and John is saying that's not me, that's not me. John is not the prophet, the final prophet. Sorry, spoiler alert, the final prophet. Okay, so he's only answering these one word sentences. They desperately want him to talk about himself. If you know anything about false prophets, you know they like talking about one of three things. They like talking about how important and how powerful they are, how special they are, how important, how powerful, how special you are, and how wonderful your life is supposed to be if you just have faith. Now, John is not talking about these things. He's not following the code of how to make money as a false prophet. John's a proper prophet. He's talking about the Christ. He's talking about the gospel, the law and the gospel. 
So they're trying to get him to talk about himself, and it's like pulling teeth with this guy. It's like he doesn't want the spotlight. It's like he's preparing the way for someone else. Like he wants to diminish so someone else should increase. Anyways, the reading from John continues like this. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, John the baptizer, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So they're trying to get him to talk about himself. And what does he do after they push him far enough? He goes and quotes scripture. He quotes another prophet. He talks about the Bible. He talks about scripture. Again, they're trying to get him to talk about himself. No, John. John knows what he's doing. John is talking about Christ. He's talking about scripture. He's talking about the law and the gospel the whole time because he's a proper prophet. Now, if you knew the Pharisees, if you knew some things about the Pharisees, at the time you would know the Pharisees, those are the good guys, right? And you know they're the good guys because they do all the right things. They follow all the right practices and they do it so everybody can see. They were very showy about their, about their praying on the street corners and, you know, and, and the, these repetitions of prayer and these special hand walk, even these traditions that they invented to make themselves in their own eyes, to make themselves more holy. Even these things they would do publicly. They would, they would tithe even their spices, you know, the, the, the mint leaves and thyme and basil and whatever other spices they had at the time. They were publicly known for being the good guys. They were doing the right thing. And this John the Baptizer guy, he's, he's not talking about himself. He's not telling people how great they are. He's not telling people they're going to have a wonderful life. What kind of a false prophet is this guy? And most of all, he's not making a big show about these things. They're frustrated. They're saying, you know, who is this religious celebrity who's not acting like a religious celebrity, a false prophet, would act? Again, he quotes scripture when they, when they, when they, when they finally get him to talk about himself. Because he's pointing to Christ. That's what prophets do. They point to Christ. They speak the word that God gives them to the people that God sends them. And that word is the law and the gospel. Now, who is the prophet. Again, think Moses is talking about a singular prophet. All the prophets are pointing forward to Christ. Hebrews 1 comes back to mind. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2. These prophets are all pointing forward to Christ. The terminus, the the, the telos, the end state of their message is Christ. Christ, Jesus, comes to the world born of Mary, in the manger, lives a perfect life, lives an obedient life, lives a righteous life, dies, and comes back three days later. In addition to doing these things, he fulfills a threefold office, you'll hear sometimes, of prophet, priest, and king. Remember, a prophet speaks the words of God. Who better to speak the words of God than God himself? In Deuteronomy, Moses is preparing these people for a prophet who will speak the words of God. The words of the Father will be in his mouth. Shocker, the Son speaks the words of the Father. I and the Father are one, he may have said at some point. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of a prophet. Every prophet points forward to Jesus, not only in their, in their act of, of proclaiming the law and the gospel and in talking about the Savior to, to come, but in also their job itself. Jesus perfectly does what every prophet hopes to do. They speak the words God gives them. He speaks the words 
of God himself. They talk about the word of God. He is the word of God. They talk about the Messiah. He is the Messiah. They talk about the salvation of the world. He is the salvation of the world. It's this, it's this perfect, perfect encapsulation of, of a prophet. All of these other prophets, even John the baptizer, even Moses and Elijah, all of these prophets could only do a fraction of what the final prophet could do. They could only point forward as a type, as a shadow, as, as, as a lesser form of this ultimate prophet who is Jesus Christ. So it's really cool that you have these Old Testament prophecies about this final prophet who will come and all of the prophets talk about Christ and then Christ is the final prophet. Isn't it cool how things all get tied up like that? Jesus, the final prophet, comes, speaks, and acts the word of God, lives and dies for your sin so that you may be forgiven. And as he rises three days later, you are also guaranteed that same resurrection bodily on the last day and in heaven if you die before then. All you have to do is have faith. Repent and believe. I hope you are having a wonderful Advent. It's good to see you again. You take care of God. take that step back I look over my shoulder and Mr. Rosenbaum Mr. Rosenbaum was now running from my right side um, and I was cornered from in front of me with Mr. Zeminski and there were There were people right there. For some people, this video here was their first exposure to a condition that members of the military, chaplains, pastors, and counselors have known about for some time. Now, this isn't PTSD or shell shock, though it may in part be. It's a different condition. It's related and it overlaps in many areas. It's called moral injury or spiritual injury. The distinction between post-traumatic stress disorder and moral injury is slight but significant. A lot of times, but again, this is not always exclusive, a lot of times post-traumatic stress disorder can be a result of a singular traumatic event. 
can be a threat to your life or your health. It can be an attack. It can be somebody almost dying. It can be a car accident. It can be an explosion. A lot of times in post-traumatic stress disorder, this carries on later on in life. And the person who is injured with this condition, they carry this fear. They carry uh, anxiety or paranoia around with them. They feel claustrophobic. Like the room is closing in on them. They feel unsafe in large crowds. Like there's too many people. Like things are, 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 are surrounding them, full of danger. This is different from moral injury. Moral injury isn't necessarily caused by a singular event, or at least not at that singular point in time. Moral injury often takes place over a period of time. Moral injury is less about an explosive event and more about the recollection of that event. It can be a compounding injury. Moral injury is when, for example, somebody looks back to an event and they say, if only I had done this. If only I had done this thing differently. If only I had known that that trash on the side of the road, that was a marker for an IED, then my fire team would still be alive today. If only I had done this impossible thing, if only I had been there, if only I had, if I had said the right thing to my friend who commits suicide, or, or if only my last words to my son before his car accident were, I love you, if only, if only. This is often the central part of moral injury. And this is why a lot of times the reaction to post-traumatic stress disorder is anger, while the reaction to moral injury is overwhelming grief and sadness. It is being completely involved in an incident and, and wishing that it were different, wishing that it could change. It's a feeling of, of shame, of guilt. PTSD is often about an attack on you. It's an assault on you. You are put in danger. Moral injury on the other hand, is more about what you could have done if only you had done this one thing differently. If only you had done this impossible thing, or maybe it was something you should have done. In any case, moral injury and PTSD often overlap. They often can be caused by the same event. But what we see here, this is something that needs to be treated a little bit differently. The treatment is different. Moral injury, you feel alone, not claustrophobic, not, not surrounded. In moral injury, you have regrets about what you did, not what happened to you. Moral injury is an indicator that people have a troubled conscience. This is firmly within Christian territory. The Christian faith is all about conscience. It's all about guilt and forgiveness reconciliation. As a pastor and as a chaplain, one of the things that's important for me to do, obviously, is to call out sin. But that's not the most important thing. And that's not the end of the story when it happens. People know that they've done things wrong. Sometimes they repress it. But when people know that they've done things wrong, often they feel grief about it. They feel guilt about it. Sometimes when they've done nothing wrong at all, Sometimes when they are perfectly innocent and the situation was out of their hands or when they acted in the appropriate way and still there were negative consequences and they wish that it could be different, they can still feel this grief. 
they can still suffer from moral injury. As Christians, we should be patient with one another. You can look at somebody else and say, why do you feel bad? You did everything you were supposed to do. But that doesn't take the pain away. That pain is a sign of a wound that they have, a moral injury. They feel like they ought to have done something else, that they ought to have said or thought or accomplished something else. I'm really hoping that Kyle Rittenhouse has a good pastor, but he's not the only one who suffers from moral injury. In his testimony, he displayed to many people an open and ongoing wound that is very similar to many people around you. It's not a sign of weakness to have an injury. Strong people break their arms too. Strong people can also be injured morally. You may know the strongest soldier, marine, airman, sailor, guardian, coast guardian. Maybe the strongest, the strongest, most spiritually fit person you know. It may be your pastor, your elders, the people who go to church all the time. They still are vulnerable to feelings of guilt. And the response to guilt, the response to remorse, if there is a sin repentance, is love. It's saying, you are forgiven. Christ died for your sin, that sin. You did not outsin God's grace. You are forgiven. Did you do something wrong? Maybe. Maybe you did nothing wrong. You are still forgiven. If you're unsure about what you did, you're still forgiven. If you did something very, very wrong and you are repentant, you are forgiven. This is something that's going to hurt. Wounds take time to heal. This is an injury. It takes time to heal. But the solution to grief, the solution to repentance, to actual sin, is forgiveness. This does fix it. You cannot go back and change the past. Nobody can do that. But looking forward to the future, you can know that your sin is paid for, that you are saved. Keep this in mind. Remember, God loves you. He died for you. And he saved you from your sin, no matter how great it is. Repent, have faith, and trust.